those of you who don't know me, my name is Becky. I'm a member of the church here. And we're going to be opening the Word of God together this morning. We have been diligently working our way through the Gospel of Luke, haven't we? This morning, we're going to be unpacking chapter 16. But before we begin, I want us to think back over our week. What have we been up to this week? What have we spent our time on this week? What have we spent our money on this week? Did you know that the average person across the course of a lifetime will spend three solid years preparing meals? Apparently, they're going to spend £500,000 on food in total over the course of our lives. We'll spend 7.2 years scrolling social media. £35,000 on clothing, apparently. Although the internet did say that rises to 97,000 if you're a woman. <laughs> 10 years watching TV. And this is my favorite. I'm definitely guilty of this. 23 solid days picking our noses. <laughs> what or who we give our time to what we spend our money on is a great indicator of what is important to us, isn't it? Luke chapter 16 is not an easy chapter to read or understand. It contains two parables that Jesus told to two very different groups of people, his disciples and the Pharisees. The first parable is considered to be the hardest parable in the Bible to understand, and the second parable is considered to be the hardest parable to accept, but both of them help us to ask a very important question, perhaps the most important question we might ever ask ourselves. What are we doing, what are we giving our one short, precious life to? What are we investing our time and our money in? In this passage, we're going to meet three men. Three men who have all lived their lives very differently. Three men who all have something to teach us about and warn us against. One is a manager who has wasted the good things his master gave him. He squandered them, but when a challenge begins to invest wisely into his future, another has wealth and influence at the expense of others, but his wealth blinds him to the poverty in his own soul. And the final man, the only man given the dignity of a name, Lazarus, is poor, wretched, and ill. But his poverty highlights his need for God, and therefore he spends his life on what really matters. We will take each of these men in turn and dig out the treasure and the warning from their tales. As we go through this chapter, I want us to be analyzing our own lives. I want us to be asking if someone who didn't know me looked at my life, how I spend my money, how I spend my time, what I talk about, what I'm passionate about. If they looked at my social media accounts, not just the bio, but the posts I'm making, would they know that I was a Christian? Would they find God at the center of it all? And if you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, then the question you need to be asking yourself is, what do I consider the point of life to be? 
What am I living for? These are important questions to which the Bible has rich and wonderful answers, some of which we're going to dig into this morning. So we're going to start with the parable of the dishonest manager, and we're going to read it a few verses at a time and just dig out the truth from them. So if you've got your Bibles, turn to Luke 16. If not, it'll be up here. The parable of the dishonest manager. Now he, that's Jesus, said to his disciples, this is for his disciples, this parable, there was a rich man who received an accusation that his manager was squandering his possessions. So he called the manager in and asked, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you can no longer be my manager. So the rich man in this story has put the manager in charge of some of his assets. He's expecting the manager to steward them well. In a similar way, Jesus has put us in charge of some of his assets. God has given us everything, hasn't he? Very little about our life did we decide upon or gain by our own volition. The period in history in which we were born the parents we were born to, the place we were born in, the privileges we stand with, the body we were given, the natural talents and gifting that we have. None of this we gained or chose for ourselves. All of it has been given to us to steward wisely, to honor God with, and to bless others. But the manager in this story has not been wise at all. He has squandered his master's possessions. I wonder if we have ever squandered something good God has given us. I wonder if we've ever invested time, money, or resources into the wrong things and reaped a terrible harvest. When I was in my late teens and early 20s, I am sorry to admit to you, church, that I cared a little bit too much about the way that I looked. And what I really liked was a suntan. And so any time there was a glimmer of sunshine, out I would rush to see if I could get that perfect tan. Well, a few weeks before Christmas, I was trestled up like a Christmas turkey with just this bit of my face sticking out. And a surgeon spent an hour whilst I was wide awake digging some skin cancer out of my face. I had reaped what I had sown. It is far easier than we realize to squander the good things that God has given us, isn't it? The master in this parable is therefore calling the manager to give an account. Give an account of how he's handled the resources he's been entrusted with. The Bible tells us that a day is fast approaching when we as Christians will stand before a holy God and have to give an account of our lives. 2 Corinthians 5.10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each may be repaid for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. It's a sobering thought, isn't it? One day, could be tomorrow, could be in 80 years' time, we will stand at the end of our lives, we'll stand before God. And as we look back over our life, what do you think would be the worst thought we could have? The most soul-wrenching, soul-destroying, agonizing thought is this. I have wasted it. I have wasted my one life. One of the most chilling things about this passage is that Jesus is warning us it's possible to be a Christian and still waste your life. 
What a tragedy that would be. We're saved. We're going to heaven. No one can snatch us from the Father's hands, not even our own stupidity. We'll be forgiven, but we'll have wasted the good things God gave us. It's worth thinking about while we still have the chance, isn't it? Let's continue reading the parable. We'll start from verse 3. Then the manager said to himself, What will I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I'm removed from management, people will welcome me into their homes. So he summoned each of his master's debtors. How much do you owe my master? He asked the first one. hundred measures of olive oil, he said. Take your invoice, he told him. Sit down quickly and write 50. Next, he asked another, how much do you owe? A hundred measures of wheat, he said. Take your invoice, he told him, and write 80. The master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the children of this age are more shrewd than the children of light in dealing with their own people. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of worldly wealth, so that when it fails, they may welcome you into eternal dwellings. The manager has squandered the master's possessions. The master calls him to account and is going to let him go. But the manager is not as foolish as he seems. He allows this moment, this reprimand, this warning to wake him up and call him to action. He looks to the future and he sees that he needs to plan for it. And so... He uses what the master has already given him. He uses what is right in front of him to invest into his future. Jesus isn't telling us to be dishonest here. He's warning us and encouraging us to take drastic, shocking action over the state of our apathy. He's telling us to be shrewd as we plan for eternity so that he too can praise us. We may well have a pension plan, house insurance, maybe even life insurance, but if we aren't planning for eternity, well, we aren't planning at all. It is utter foolishness to spend our lives on things that will spoil and fade when we could be investing and building God's kingdom that will last forever. But what does investing in eternity look like? What is the greatest thing that we could spend our lives on? Back in November 2020, a letter penned by a man called John Harper sold at auction for £42,000. What on earth had this man done to warrant his letter selling for such an incredible amount? Well, John Harper was a widowed Baptist minister. He was the pastor of Woolworth Road Baptist Church in London. And in April 1912, he was sailing to Chicago to preach there. He was sailing on board the fated Titanic with his sister and his only child, Annie Jessie. When the ship began to sink, John was offered a place on a lifeboat with his sister and daughter. But he refused the place. He kissed them goodbye, and he went about warning people to get into lifeboats, preaching the gospel and leading many to Christ. Survivors say he was preaching even as the waves engulfed him. One man whom John asked, is your soul saved, answered no to him. So John took off his own life jacket and gave it to the man. 
in a reunion of survivors four years later, that man had survived and claimed, I am the last convert of John Harper, because he had subsequently given his life to Christ. I ask you, did John Harper waste his life? No. Why was his life not wasted? Because he was a hero for a few hours on board a sinking ship? No. What John shows us in that sinking vessel is what he was already giving his life to. He was already single-minded in his pursuit of knowing and making known his beautiful saviour. And he was willing to take what God had given him, what was right in front of him, his life jacket, his own life even, to love God, to love others, and to invest in eternity. Now, I love inspiring stories, but sometimes they can have the effect of making us feel guilty instead of inspired, can't they? One of my children said to me the other day, how on earth can God use you when you're a stay-at-home mum? <laughs> Such a confidence booster, kids, right? Here's a better question. How on earth could God not use a stay-at-home mum if she is willing to take what is right in front of her and use it for his glory? A well-lived life invested in eternity is not about what you do, but how and why you do it. God is not asking you to invest what is in front of somebody else, only what he has given you. John Piper, in his outstanding book, Don't Waste Your Life, makes the point that often as Christians, we're asking the wrong questions of ourselves. We ask, is this thing or that thing wrong to do as a Christian? Is it wrong to sunbathe as a Christian? No. Is it wrong to doom scroll Instagram? No. Is it wrong to own an expensive car? No. And what we end up with is generations of Christians who don't commit tax fraud or adultery. They're kind to people. They make good neighbors. But nobody looks at them and thinks, wow, their life is radically different to mine. Their life is so different to mine. What is it about them? Who is this Jesus? The questions we should really be asking, John Piper argues, are how can I use what God has given me to make much of him? How can I use my life jacket or my home or my time? How can I glorify him and enjoy him and share him with others through my job or through Instagram or through how I spend my money? The manager in this story has made his master look foolish by squandering his possessions. Are we making Jesus look like the incredible hope and treasure that he truly is by the way that we live our lives? Are we making Jesus look like the treasure he really is by the way that we live our lives? John Piper, we waste our lives. We waste our lives when we do not pray and think and dream and plan and work toward magnifying God in all spheres of life. The opposite of wasting your life, is to live by a single, soul-satisfying passion for the supremacy of God in all things. A single, soul-satisfying passion for his supremacy in all things. I want to live my life like that, don't you? 
Jesus finishes this parable by telling his disciples, whoever is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And whoever is unrighteous in very little is also unrighteous in much. So if you have not been faithful with worldly wealth, who will give you what is genuine? And if you have not been faithful with what belongs to someone else, who will give you what is your own? No servant can serve two masters since either he will hate one and love the other or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve. You cannot serve both God and money. It's challenging, isn't it? What or who are we giving our lives to? We cannot serve two masters. What are we living for? No one but you can answer those questions about your life. No one but you can decide who sits on the throne of your life. As Jesus warns his disciples with this parable about not wasting their life, someone else is listening in. A group of people, actually, the Pharisees, the religious leaders of their day. And when they hear this parable about the dishonest manager, they scoff at it. They don't think that what they have comes from God at all at all. They think it comes from their own ingenuity, their own righteousness. And Jesus is not shy. He is not meek and mild in the face of men who seek to undermine the truth of what he is saying. But because Jesus has great compassion on the Pharisees and longs for them to know the Father, he tells them this terrible parable of the rich man and Lazarus to show them that all their riches All their good works are blinding them to what is really important. Let's read it. Verse 19, the rich man and Lazarus. There was a rich man who would dress in purple and fine linen, feasting lavishly every day. But a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, was lying at his gate. He longed to be filled with what fell from the rich man's table, but instead the dogs would come and lick his sores. One day the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torment in Hades, he looked up and saw Abraham a long way off with Lazarus at his side. Father Abraham, he called out, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and call my tongue because I'm in agony in this flame. Son, Abraham said, remember that during your life you received your good things just as Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here while you are in agony. Besides all this, a great chasm has been fixed between us and you so that those who want to pass over from here to you cannot and neither can those from there cross over to us. Father, he said, then I beg you to send him to my father's house because I have five brothers to warn them so that they won't also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, then they will repent. But he told them, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. Heaven and hell. We live at a time in history when it's never been more taboo to mention hell. Heaven is fine, but mention hell and we all recoil, don't we? 
Someone asked me recently, why can't God just send everyone to heaven? Seems like the ideal solution, doesn't it? Except, could you really call God good? Would you really want to be in heaven if he welcomed Hitler through his gates or any perpetrator of genocide? Could you really call God just or compassionate if he turned a blind eye to child molesters and murderers? And if you're keeping them out of heaven, well, then where do you draw the line? If you follow the thread logically, you have to draw the line at perfection. And who of us here can claim to be perfect? Jesus talks about hell more than anyone else in the Bible, and he talks about hell more than heaven. Why? Because like our friend John Harper, God wants to... Sorry, I've lost myself. Jesus wants to warn us to get into a lifeboat whilst we still can. He wants to warn us that unless we take action, we too will find ourselves on the wrong side of that chasm. The wrong side of that chasm. Jesus, because he loves us, is desperate to tell us how to avoid hell. And that is why he tells this dreadful parable. As is so often the case in life, looks can be deceiving. Here is a rich man looking for all the world as if he is winning at life. Feasting lavishly, dressing finely, enjoying the status his wealth brings, whilst a poor man, Lazarus, withers at his gate, looking for all the world as if he is failing at life. Then, suddenly, Death comes to them both, as it will to all of us. And we see that spiritually, the opposite was actually true. It was Lazarus who was rich and the rich man who was poor. The rich man has lived his life without regard for God, without regard for others, without even any regard for the poor man at his own gate. He has put his hope in wealth. He has placed his bets on status. He is determined that he doesn't need God. And so in death, he doesn't get God. The rich man had everything in this life except the one thing that really mattered. That's why Abraham says to the rich man, you've received your good things. Because he had chosen to rely on himself and his money, there was nothing more that heaven could offer him. Let's know, in case we think that this is unfair, that he is unrepentant even in hell. Even in hell, he demands that Lazarus serve him like some sort of servant or slave. The problem with the rich man is not that he was rich, but that his riches blinded him to his need for God. He arrogantly supposed, as many of us do in the West, that he was fine on his own, that he didn't need God. Revelation 3.17, for you say, I'm rich, I've become wealthy, and I need nothing. And you don't realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. When everything is stripped from a person, either in this life or the next, that is when he or she discovers what is really important, isn't it? Money blinds us to and robs us of our need for God. Money is dangerous for this reason. Poverty highlights our need for God and presses forward our need for God and so is a blessing for this reason. If we understand that the greatest need our soul has is not for comfort or significance but for relationship with God, then we will see that anything that points us to that, anything that allows that to grow in our lives is actually, in the light of eternity, a huge blessing. 
The rich man was blinded by his riches. He relied on them and he ignored the poor. What about us? The Christian author Mark Batterson says this, if you have food in the refrigerator, clothes on your back, a roof overhead and a place to sleep, you are richer than 75% of this world. If you have money in the bank or in your wallet or spare change in a dish someplace, you rank among the top 8%, 8% of the world's wealthy. The top 8%. We are the rich ones. We are the rich ones. What are we doing with our wealth? Luke 12, 15, he then told them, Jesus told them, watch out and be on guard against all greed because one's life is not in the abundance of his possessions. Guess how many possessions the average American household contains? I couldn't find stats for the UK, but we're probably not far behind. 300,000 possessions. We're talking, you know, knives, forks, socks, but 300,000 possessions. One's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. No wonder we all feel overwhelmed. It is far easier than we realize to fall into the trap of thinking that what we really need is one more thing. How often do we scroll Instagram or Facebook and find ourselves looking up a product on Amazon? How much stuff do we have in our house that we don't really need? In the Gospels, Jesus praises the woman who gives her last coin to the poor, but says that the rest of us are just giving out of our surplus, our excess. Our giving is meant to cost us. It's meant to be radically self-sacrificial. Notice the rich man did not do Lazarus any harm in this parable. It was his absence of action that was the problem. What sort of action should we be taking? Jesus gives us the answer in Matthew 25. This is Jesus speaking. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you didn't take me in. I was naked, and you didn't clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you didn't take care of me. Then they too will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or without clothes or sick or in prison and not help you? Then he will answer them, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Our love for Jesus is meant to be shown and outworked by our love for the poor. How much love do we have for Jesus based on the witness of our bank statements? I know that I stand in front of a very generous church, but I also know that most of us still live very comfortable lives. I don't know about you, but the thing my husband and I find most challenging as we seek to live out our love for God is how we spend our money. We don't see Christians living comfortable, rich lives in the Bible. In the New Testament, we see that members of the early church sold all they had and gave it to the poor, and as a result, people flooded through their doors. That's the model we're trying to emulate, but how often do we see Christians in the West truly living like this? How can I claim to love Jesus? How can I claim that he is my one joy, my one treasure, my only hope if I don't love others by giving generously? If I turn a blind eye to those who are hungry and naked and poor, how can I call myself a Christian at all? 
John Piper. The world is not impressed. It's not impressed when Christians get rich and say thanks to God. They are impressed when God is so satisfying that we give our riches away for Christ's sake and count it gain. As Christians, our giving is meant to be so sacrificial that it points people to Jesus. We are meant to be poor so that people can discover the riches of Christ. Our giving is meant to open the door of heaven wide for others to walk through. Is our giving so radically sacrificial that people look at it and want to know Jesus? I'm not trying to make us feel guilty here. That is not what God wants at all. He hung his son on a cross to take away our guilt and shame. But that doesn't mean that there isn't a place for him to challenge us this morning. There isn't a place for us to reassess how we handle our money. So if the rich man teaches us that we can't hold on to our worldly wealth, that we can't take it with us, and the unrighteous manager teaches us that instead we can wisely and shrewdly invest our money into eternity by giving it away to the poor, then what does Lazarus teach us? Well, something wonderful. Something we really need to hear after all the challenging questions we've been asking ourselves. There is a terrible proverb that people think comes from the Bible, and it doesn't. And it says this, God helps those who help themselves. He doesn't. God helps those who know they can't help themselves. Lazarus is not like the rich man. He has no, or the unrighteous manager. He has nothing to rely on in this life. No home, no wealth, no food, no friends, not even his health. He can't claim to have done anything wonderful for God. As far as we know, he never gave his life jacket to anyone. But his abject poverty does lead him to cry out to God. The parable doesn't explicitly state this, but his sitting by Abraham's side in eternity shows us this must have been the case. Lazarus had nothing, and that was all he needed. We might sit here worrying that we haven't invested the good things that God gave us wisely. We might be feeling condemned rather than inspired about the way we manage our money. But Lazarus cuts through all that. He shows us that Jesus is looking for people who know that they need him, people who love him, people who are willing to put him at the center of their lives, not people who get it right all the time. If we put Jesus at the center of everything, then everything else, how we spend our money, how we spend our time, how we spend eternity, will all fall into place. So don't be like the Pharisees. Don't be offended by this parable. It's actually incredibly good news. You don't need to have anything or do anything other than admit your own sin and need for God in order to qualify for heaven in order to enjoy the Father in eternity forever. The rich man asked Abraham to send a man to rise from the dead as proof that heaven and hell are real. A little while later, guess what? A man did rise from the dead. His name was Jesus. As proof that not only are heaven and hell real, but that he was willing to suffer hell so that we could enjoy heaven. 
If you are here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, this is good news for you as it was for all of us when we first received Christ and still is good news for us. You don't need to be good enough. You don't need to be wealthy or important. You don't even need to help yourself. You just need to admit you can't make it on your own. That your wealth and your good deeds, your status, it's not enough. You need Jesus to give you his perfection in place of your imperfection. And if you do that this morning, then God will welcome you with open arms. You will spend eternity enjoying the Father. That's available for you this morning. Chat with the person you came with. The rich man was rotting in hell because he thought he was good enough on his own. Don't make the same mistake. We're coming into land now. We've asked ourselves some very challenging questions this morning. They are questions we need to keep asking throughout our lives if we want to make sure that we are not wasting them, if we want to make sure that we are not squandering the good things God gave us, if we want to make sure that we are helping people to connect with God rather than standing in their way, then we need to heed the warnings from these two parables and these three men. The manager warns us not to waste our life, but to invest what is right in front of us in eternity. The rich man warns us not to ignore the poor, but use what God has given us to bless others and open the door of heaven wide for them. Lazarus teaches us that even though we may feel we have nothing, all we actually need is Jesus. And if we have him, then we will spend eternity enjoying him and his pleasures forevermore. Hallelujah. Perhaps the band could come up, please. I don't know about you, but I am desperate not to waste my life. I am desperate to live my life by a single soul-satisfying passion for the supremacy of God in all things. I'm desperate to use my money to bless the poor and invest in eternity because I love Jesus. I'm desperate to enjoy our beautiful Savior. Isn't he wonderful? Don't you love him? I long to know him more and more as my life progresses. There's no end to how much you can know about Jesus, how well you can walk with him, how closely you can know him. I long to make his name known in my day. Don't you long for that? Don't you long for Jesus' name to be lifted high in our land? Don't you long for others to know how wonderful it is to be in his presence and to know him and love him? I want to live a life worthy of his name because I love him. I'm going to pray and then we're going to sing a beautiful hymn, Abide With Me, that just helps us to connect with the fleeting nature of life. We've stared death in the face this morning. There's not many songs that help you think about death. Let's walk with Jesus towards it. Let's walk with Jesus towards the glorious eternity. For those of us who are in Christ, it's not something to be afraid of, is it? It's something to look forward to with great joy. That moment when we will see Jesus face to face. That moment when he'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. I can't wait. Father, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you that you hung your son upon a cross so that we could be free, so that we could enjoy eternity with you. And we say to you this morning that we love you. We're so grateful for what you've done for us. Lord God, we say we're sorry when we've squandered the good things you've given us. We know that we do. 
We're sorry when we don't spend our money on the poor, when we don't invest it in eternity. We're sorry when we give our time to silly things. God, help us to invest our time and our money and our energy into you. We want our lives to be all about you. We want you to be firmly at the center of it all. We want people to look at our lives and see that you are a treasure, that you are wonderful. Because we love you, Jesus. We long, we long to be more and more like you. You are the apple of our eye. You're the center of our gaze. We love you, Jesus. Help us to live a life worthy of your name.